Chapter 35 How strange was the passage of time, Charlotte thought. It seemed but a week or two since she had arrived in Sanditon, and yet it also seemed like years. The thought of Willingdon was so distant that she could not believe she would soon be returning. She had begun a letter to her sister that morning, in the hope that she could explain her thoughts about the season she had spent away from everything she had previously held dear, but her feelings were as yet too confused and contradictory to be clearly set down, and she had given it up. It was a shame because she was in great need of advice about a particular person. There was no one in Santaton she could comfortably confide in. Restless in her mind, she decided to leave the house so that at least her physical body might be exhausted. She would call on Georgiana. On the way, she was hailed by Arthur, who was arm in arm with his sister, the pair of them walking at such a sedate pace that some very ancient townsfolk were overtaking them with ease. He warned her to take care in the freezing wind, which made her smile. It was a perfectly clement day, the breeze little more than a warm breath on her face. "'I do like Arthur Parker,' Charlotte said to Georgiana, once they were seated in Mrs. Griffith's blue parlor. "'He is a very good fellow, despite the fuss he makes about his own and everyone else's health.' Georgiana nodded. "'He is one of the few people I can bear the sight of in this horrid place.' I saw you talking to Mr. Sidney Parker after the regatta, and felt very sorry for you. What a beast that man is. As Charlotte had been thinking directly opposing thoughts all morning, she could not help but protest. Georgiana, you don't really think that, do you? He cares for you. He did come to your rescue, after all. I wish he had not. Really? How can you wish that? Otis would have rescued me without that man's interference. Charlotte frowned. You really think he would? Georgiana's lip trembled. Otis loved me, and I sent him away and told him I wouldn't see him again, and now I wish I had not. What if he was after my money? I have more than enough for us both. Who is Mr. Parker to tell me how I should live my life? Hateful man. Charlotte could not reply truthfully without giving offense. It was not just that she wholeheartedly disagreed with Georgiana's retelling of what had occurred in London, but also what she thought of the man. Georgiana gave her a sharp look. "'You're not going to tell me that you are fond of him now. I, "'I do have feelings for him.' She could no longer keep it in. Georgiana paused. "'And what about him?' "'I think he returns them.' She blushed and was glad of the relative dimness of the room. Though she had expected an outburst of indignation and contempt, Georgiana merely looked thoughtful. "'Oh.' I thought he was promised to that wealthy widow with all the jewels and highfalutin ways. He he told me he wasn't returning to London with her. He is staying here in Sanditon, and he told me he hoped very much that I would stay here too. She couldn't help it. Her heart swelled as she spoke the words aloud, but Georgiana looked skeptical. And? Is that all? He He seemed very sincere. Georgiana harumphed, sounding peculiarly like Lady Denham. Very sincere, he'd like to keep you dangling after him. Do you know what I think? I think he's just playing with your feelings. I notice he hasn't made you any promises. No, but... Charlotte fell silent, just as a knock on the front door was heard. Here we are, said a jocular voice. The maid showed in Arthur and Diana. They were clutching books and a large paper bag from the baker's. Buns, 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 lovely sugary buns, exclaimed Arthur by way of explanation. And all the latest novels from the circulating library, 
said Diana. Buns and books. All you need for perfect happiness. Georgiana smiled. You are too good to me. Not at all. It is a pleasure to share them with you. Arthur gestured at the back. Will you join us, Miss Haywood? Now, don't gobble them all, dear brother, said Diana. You'll make us late for our treatments. Dr. Fuchs is available again, now that Lady Dunham is on the mend. I have at least ten treatments to catch up on, and so does Arthur. Lady Dunham was indeed on the mend, to the degree that she had forced a miserable Esther to play cards with her. Fifteen-two, fifteen-four, twenty-five-seven, and a pair is nine, she declared. You shouldn't have put your naughty out so soon. You're playing like a nincompoop. What's the matter with you? Esther heaved a great sigh. I suppose it's a great weakness, but I cannot make myself excited about card games, Lady Dunham. Her aunt tatted as she shuffled the cards. You are not a very stimulating companion, Esther. I hope you're not pining for that degenerate brother of yours. No, but I confess I miss the man he might have been. Don't get all metaphysical with me, young lady. Now, go over to the pianoforte and play something jolly. Esther briefly closed her eyes. Must I? Something rousing, mind, said Lady Denham in reply, and stop that pouting or I'll make you sing as well. Esther, heavy of limb and heart, dragged herself over to the instrument and began to play. She was glad to break off when a footman came in. My lady, Lord Babington is here. Lady Denham's small eyes lit up. Well, send him in, man. Babington entered wearing his usual affable smile and bowed to both of them. Lady Denham, Miss Denham. His eye lingered on Esther, his expression visibly softening. This did not go unnoticed by Lady Denham. Well, now, I wonder you dare sh show your face here, after your shabby showing at the regatta, she said joshingly. Beaten by the local yokels, I heard. For shame. Babington smiled easily. Indeed, we ran him pretty close, but they were too much for us. The niceties attended to, Lady Denham leant forward. So, what brings you here? I thought to tempt Miss Denham with a carriage ride. Esther lowered her eyes. No, thank you. Lady Denham shot her a dangerous look before turning back to Babington. But that's an excellent idea. She needs a good shaking about to jolt her out of her despondency. Come along, miss. Up you get. Really, I beg of you. I would not. Babington spread his hands in appeal. In truth, there will be no shaking about. And as little jolting as possible. My carriage is well sprung and hung, and the air today is as mild and fresh as could be wished. Miss Denham, I appeal to you. Esther sighed. She drooped at the pianoforte stool like a broken flower. Must I? Lady Denham gave Babington a steely smile. She will do as she's told. Seeing no choice in the matter, and having little enough will to object further, Esther soon found herself being helped up into Babington's phaeton. Though she wouldn't have admitted it, there was some relief to be had in being outside, under the sky, feeling the breeze on her skin, and, most of all, leaving behind Sanditon House and its mistress. With Babington at the reins, Esther beside him, they made swift progress through the park and down the hill into the town. They slowed on reaching the seafront, but then, to Esther's surprise and secret delight, Babington steered the horses straight onto the beach. The compacted sand was wonderfully smooth under the wheels. It felt as though they were flying. "'Why do you do this?' she said to Babington, 
who was smiling happily beside her, hands loose on the reins. Indulge me, won't you? he said. It simply makes me happy to have you here with me. I cannot imagine why. I feel the exact opposite about you. He turned to her. Do you, truly? Didn't I just say so? Another layer of lassitude blew off her. There was no doubt that upbraiding of Lord of the Realm could be invigorating, even when one was in the depths of despair. I refuse to believe you, he said. Babington, give up. I am a lost cause. I know. I don't care. Do you like to go fast? He shook the reins and the horse responded. I don't care if you drive us into the sea, said Esther. She had a sudden urge to laugh. Good idea, he cried. Giddy up. Babington, you are the world's worst carriage driver. Care to take the reins? She hesitated and then reached out. Why not? Give them here. She shook them hard and the horses broke into a full gallop. Her bonnet, only loosely tied, was flung back and her bright hair came loose. Babington turned to watch her with frank adoration. To him, she was like Boudicca reborn, a warrior queen. As for her... For the first time in many days, Esther Denham felt alive. When Charlotte returned from her visit to Georgiana, she found Trafalgar House in uproar. Tom, his spirits still dizzyingly raised after the success of the regatta, was wearing a tricorn hat and apparently leading his offspring in a victory against the French. Napoleon in full retreat, he was bellowing happily as he, she crossed the hall, avoiding the various Parker children. Who assailed her as she did? Rule Britannia, board that galleon, men. She found Mary in the drawing room, where she had retreated to its relative calm. Young Stringer was also there, standing somewhat awkwardly in a corner, patiently waiting for his employer to cease fighting. Charlotte, said Mary, how did you find Miss Lamb this morning? Oh, much more like herself, full of strong opinions and buns. Buns? Arthur has been feeding her up. Mary smiled. He is such a dear man. Enemy on the port side. Strike the top gallants, cried Tom, as he was pushed into the room by his overexcited children. All right, all right. Enough. I surrender. Run up the white flag. Mary, do something with them. Come along, children. Your father's busy. She led them from the room. There you are, Charlotte, said Tom, noticing her for the first time. What an absolutely splendid day. The whole world wants to come to Sanditon. I was telling young Stringer about the correspondence. We're going to be full from now till the end of the season, so it's all hands on deck to get the last apartments fitted out. We've let every last one. That's wonderful. Young Stringer stepped forward, still awkward. But I was telling Mr. Parker I doubt we'll get the work done on time. He looked down, embarrassed, but didn't take back the words. Tom was unconcerned. Tell the men they're on double time if they'll work around the clock. The future of Sanditon depends on them. Ah, morning, Sydney. The room felt immediately airless to Charlotte. She turned to see him for herself, and their eyes met. They always seemed to find each other's gazes now. He smiled at her, an intimate sort of smile that made her feel like the only person in the room. No, the only person in Sanditon. What's the matter, Charlotte? said Tom. To something you had for breakfast disagree with you? She blushed and then caught young Stringer's injured expression. Tom might be oblivious, but he was not. 
but still, she could not temper her happiness. No, no, I am well, she replied with another glance towards Sydney. I am very well indeed. Sydney cleared his throat. I just called to say I'm walking into town if there's anything you need there. Oh, I have a dress fitting for the ball, cried Charlotte, the words tumbling out of her. Perhaps I could walk with you? Of course, my pleasure, he smiled at her again. Go on, then, said Mary indulgently. Off you go, the pair of you. It was a particularly pretty day, the sunlight gilding Tom's new buildings, and the dark blue sea with bright points of gold. As far as Sydney and Charlotte noticed, however, it might as well have been raining star stair rods. Neither spoke as they walked, both of them remembering the previous evening's momentous exchange. Charlotte felt buoyant enough that she was in danger of simply floating away. A fine, fresh day, said Sydney eventually. Charlotte smiled up at him, how profound he was. Yes, indeed. Bodes well for the ball tonight. Yes. Though, being an indoor occasion, good weather is not so, not so much a consideration. No, quite. They smiled at each other again. Are you looking forward to the ball? He tried again. Very much. I love to dance. A silence fell between them yet again, and, happy as she was, the awkwardness of it began to tell on her. Are you looking forward to the ball? She echoed weakly. Yes, very much. And, uh, how are your family? Have you heard from them recently? Yes, a letter from my sister just came this morning. She pictured Willingdon briefly, and again had the sense that her home was as distant as the moon. And any news? You know that nothing ever happens in Willington. Everyone is well, though, and very busy with the harvest. Yes, of course they must be. A farmer is always busy, and exceptionally so just now. Charlotte looked about her and realized that they had long passed Sanderson's shops. There was not road underfoot now but the sand and sparse grass of the cliff path. We seem not to be walking into town. Sydney glanced around, apparently as surprised as her. No, of course, you're dress fitting. What a fool I am. Should we turn back? She laughed, and any awkwardness between them vanished into the breeze. No, there's no urgency, none at all. A walk on the cliffs is much more to my taste. He gave her one of the looks that seemed to turn her legs to water. Good, my thoughts exactly. In fact... I was hoping that we might find a moment when we could be alone together. You were? Her heart began to pound. They'd come to a natural stop. Behind Sydney, the sea dazzled, lighting his edges with a bronze glow. I woke very early this morning, he said, my head full of the conversation we had last night. Yes? Charlotte. Yes? She tipped her chin up to him just as he bent towards her. The kiss was gentle at first, and then more passionate. There had been no decision, no hesitation. They had acted purely on instinct, the rightness of it confirmed as the rest of the world dropped away, leaving nothing but the two of them and the heat between them. Esther paused for a moment outside Lady Denham's drawing room to adopt her customary droop. She did not want to give the old lady satisfaction. "'Well, did you enjoy yourself?' she quizzed as soon as Esther walked in, suitably weary-looking. "'It was tolerable, past the time,' 
But Lady Denham's beady eyes were not deceived. Nonsense. I may be old, but I'm not blind. I can see the brightness of your eyes and the color in your cheeks. You should marry that young man. He's a fool. He is, is no fool, Esther. He's a fool if he cannot see that I am not worth having, Esther returned. Perhaps I was once, but now I am good for nothing, and f no one. It is infinitely better to be loved than to love, especially in a marriage. After all, to love someone is to be held captive. Esther's head snapped up in surprise. She wondered how much her sharp-eyed aunt had seen and understood of her closeness to her brother after all. And do you speak from your own experience or someone else's? Lady Denham leaned forward. My own. Not with my husband, of course. It was long before that. A man called Rowley. Some people called him the handsomest man in Somerset. For me, he was quite the handsomest in the world. No one he knew it. She smiled ruefully, her eyes far away in the past. My heart would pound so hard when he came into the room that I was afraid it would burst out of my chest. It was worse than influenza. Very exciting at the time, of course. Esther closed her mouth, which had fallen open. What happened? Oh, he kept dangling me for a while, trembling like one of his dogs for a look or a smile, for a tender word, and then he upped and married a girl from Gloucester with forty thousand. He had debts, of course, and couldn't afford to marry me. It should have been obvious to me at the time, but you know what young girls are. What are you staring at? Did you ne think I never had a heart? Well, not exactly that. The point is, it's much better to be the one who holds the reins. Esther was about to protest, to her, but to her dismay, she could think of nothing to say. To her profound surprise, she realized her aunt might be right. Chapter 36 It was evening, fine and soft, the air perfumed with Mary's roses, the sea, and a great deal of promise. Charlotte regarded herself in the cheval glass in her room, wondering why she looked different. True, she had arranged her hair differently, and her complexion was luminous with good health, but she thought it was something more. Then it struck her. It must be happiness, lighting her from within. When she came down the stairs, Tom and Mary were waiting, the children, too, scrubbed and pink-cheeked. They had been promised that they could see everyone in their finery before they went to bed. "'Here she comes,' said Tom, looking up and spotting Charlotte first. "'You look beautiful, my dear. Quite the grown-up lady.' "'You look like a princess, Charlotte,' said little Alicia in a voice of wonder. "'Please stop it,' she cried, feeling like nothing more than a bottle of Lady Worcester's champagne, her cork loosening dangerously. "'You'll make me nervous.' Mary took her arm and led her to the door. "'You have nothing to be nervous about.' she said in her comforting way. But, in truth, I do sense something different. Is it just your hair? In the honeyed light cast by the evening sky, she studied Charlotte closely. There seems to be, I don't know, an extra sparkle about you this evening. Charlotte looked down, a small smile on her lips. I don't know what you mean. Mary leant in close. Tom asked me to marry him at a ball in Weymouth. Oh, did he? Charlotte swallowed. Mary laughed and stepped into the carriage. I've no idea what made me think of that. And what are you two talking about? Said Tom as he joined them. Nothing at all, said Mary, still smiling. But I hope you intend to dance with me tonight, Tom. 
He took her hand up and kissed it. As many dances as you wish, my love. While the gentry were dressing and preparing for the ball, young Stringer and his men were finishing the last details on the terrace so that everything might be ready. Potted trees were placed at elegant intervals, and the last of the unsightly rubble had been cleared away. "'Coming along nicely, Fred,' said young Stringer, nodding to his work. "'Aye, we'll make it look pretty enough for him. "'Have you seen my father?' He patted the letter from London inside his pocket. Fred grinned. "'He's inside, working on the finish. Where else? Wouldn't have anyone else on it.' Young Stringer found his father rubbing down a section of molding, which already looked finished. All right, Dad. You could be getting home now. His father didn't turn from his work. When it's done to my satisfaction. Come on, leave it to the lads. They'll get it done. Mr. Parker wants it finished, not perfect. Mr. Parker's not a craftsman like you and me. If it's not right, he may not know or care. And the summer visitors may not know or care. But I will, and you will too. I'll be finished in an hour or so. You get off to the dance. His son hesitated. It was always the way with him at the moment, or so it seemed. Two different worlds pulling him in two different directions. Doesn't seem right. While you're working. His father grunted out a laugh. <laughs> get on with you. I'm enjoying myself in my own way. Young Stringer hesitated, felt again for the letter. Father, the old man turned. I've had a letter. He brought it out. The envelope was softened from the number of times he'd opened and read the contents. Oh, wow. He took a breath in. It's about a position in London with prospects. A chance to make something of myself. His father's face hardened. Standerton not good enough for you now, is that? Is that it? He gritted his teeth. What are you talking about? That Miss Charlotte, isn't it? Filled your head with a load of nonsense. It's got nothing to do with her. He was angry now. The two of them had been skirting around this for weeks. There was some relief in being honest now. Yes, it has, his father said. And now you're off to the dance to get more of the same. Well, off you go then. Don't worry. I will go. Not just to the ball. I'll leave Sanditon too. And I shan't waste a moment thought on the miserable, selfish old man I left behind. Before his father could say anything further, young Stringer strode away but the all the relief had burnt away now, leaving behind in his belly a knot of misgiving that he couldn't explain. Still, he didn't turn back. The ball that evening was a very different occasion to the one that had taken place during Charlotte's first week at Sanditon. There must have been twice the number of guests and three times the candles. It was a neat illustration of the resort's changing fortunes, or so Tom Parker hoped. Sidney had been one of the first to arrive, and now kept glancing at the door. There was only one person he wished to see, but as he looked over yet again, it was his friend Babington who arrived. Spotting Sidney, he raised a hand and made his way over. Sidney, any sign of Miss Denham yet? No, I'm afraid not. You've still not surrendered, then, despite her best efforts? Babington's eyes lit up. I don't know what it is, but I find myself quite captivated. Nothing, I say, seems to strike her right, and yet I prefer her sharp tongue to the simpering compliance you find with most women. You want to tame her, do you? Babington smiled ruefully. I believe she has tamed me. Sidney looked thoughtful. Yes, I can just about imagine how that might feel. 
He checked the door again. Who is it you're waiting for? Not Mrs. Campion, I take it. No, I don't expect we shall be seeing each other for quite some time. No prospect of an engagement, then? Sidney's eyes were still on the door. Not to her, no. Babington raised an eyebrow, most intrigued. The room began to fill, the pitch of the throng rising as it did. Finally, Sidney saw her, entering with Tom and Mary. She looked different, though he couldn't have said why. She looked older, somehow, and more beautiful than he'd ever seen her. Without a word to Babington, he began to make his way over, but Tom beat him to it, taking the center of the floor and raising his hands until he got, got everyone's attention. "'My lords, ladies and gentlemen,' he announced, "'it's my great, my very great pleasure to invite you to this Midsummer Ball. I would like to thank all of you for helping us make this first season such a success. No further words are necessary, so on with the dance, and let joy be unconfined.' New musicians struck up, and on the other side of the room from Sydney, Charlotte felt a surge of anticipation swell in her breast. There was something about tonight that she could not quite explain, a tipping sense, as though she was standing on a precipice. She didn't know if she was more excited or nervous. She knew exactly where Sydney was in the room without looking, as though they were joined by an invisible cord. Sidney looks happier than I've seen him in a long while, said Mary, interrupting her thoughts. She looked over then, finally daring to meet his eye. He smiled tenderly at her, and her blood raced in her veins. I wonder can be, what can be the cause of it, Mary was saying. Do you have any idea, Charlotte? I expect he must be very relieved that the season turned out so well. Mary smiled knowingly. Yes, I suppose that must be it. Oh, "'Good evening, Mr. Hankins,' the Reverend approached, beaming and perspiring in equal measure. "'Mrs. Parker, Miss Hayward, what delightful and wholesome entertainment a ball is. Delightful, delightful.' Rubbing his hands, so many young ladies to admire, he progressed circuitously towards Mrs. Griffiths, edging around and complimenting at least half a dozen of the prettiest attendees as he went. It was Georgiana who first noticed him bearing down on them. "'Oh, Lord, not him!' she said perfectly audibly, which made the Beaufort sisters giggle. "'Ah, uh, Mrs. Griffiths,' he said, apparently oblivious. "'Here you are with your bouquet of blossoms. There is nothing more pleasing to the Lord than a young girl in the first flower of her pulchritude. But we must not forget the maturer vintages, for they have a deeper and more subtle appeal to the discerning nose of the experienced connoisseur. Georgiana snorted. Do you count yourself as one of those, do you, Mr. Hankins? said Mrs. Griffiths. I do, I do, and you look particularly bewitching this evening, if I may say so. She turned puce with delight. Oh, Mr. Hankins, I am here merely a chaperone to my curls. He went in. A very lovely one, in my opinion. Too kind, she twittered. Perhaps it would not be wholly inappropriate to ask you for the next dance. Oh, Mr. Hankins, I would be delighted. He offered her his arm, and she took it so swiftly it was as though the offer might expire. At the same time, the Beaufort girls' ostent ostentatious preening 
had not gone unnoticed by two local boys who now approached, both of them smelling strongly of pomade and drink. Their offers to dance accepted, Georgiana found herself unattended. She she noticed her guardian nearby and turned to see what he was looking so intently at. It was Charlotte. Georgiana approached him without hesitation. Georgiana, he turned to greet her, I'm glad to see you enjoying yourself. What are you up to with Charlotte? She said bluntly. He frowned. I don't understand your meaning. You've done your best to ruin my happiness, she retorted. How could I trust you not to ruin hers as well? They both turned, so that neither should have to bear the sight of the other for another moment. Georgiana found Arthur ambling towards her, hand raised in greeting. There you are, Miss L. Care to stand up with me? She would be delighted, said Sidney over her shoulder. The two of them made a curious pair, both of them dancing with great exuberance, one from temper and the other from general high spirits. Sidney watched them for a moment and then found himself searching for Charlotte once again. Seeing her, his heart lifting, he began to make his way over. Young Stringer reached her first. Charlotte, for her part, had seen Sidney and was hoping he would approach her, just as young Stringer reached her side. He didn't look his usual cheerful self tonight, and when he asked her to dance, she didn't like to refuse him. In fact, they made good partners, Charlotte was surprised how comfortable she felt in his arms as he led her around the room. "'There was something I wanted to tell you, miss,' he began. "'I have been offered an excellent situation in London, and, well, I plan to accept it.' "'To be an architect?' "'An apprentice, to start with.' She smiled, delighted for him. "'Oh, I am so pleased that your talent has been recognized. You will be much missed here in Sanditon, though.' "'Thank you. And what of your plans? Do you intend to remain here?' I had always assumed I would be leaving at the season's end. Her eyes took on a faraway gleam. But now I'm not too sure. Young Stringer looked across the floor to where Sidney Parker stood with Lord Babington. Charlotte followed his gaze. You have found a reason to stay, then? Yes, I believe I have. He sighed, though she didn't catch it in the hubbub. Then I hope you'll be very happy, and I'll hope he'll prove worthy of you. He is a lucky man, Miss Haywood, truly. She smiled at him. He was the first person who had acknowledged the possibility of her and Sidney aloud, except for Georgiana, but young Stringer showed none of her skepticism. They moved off again as the, mu- as the music decreed, and she was so happy she scarcely noticed how tightly young Stringer gripped her hand, as though it was the last time he might be permitted to touch it. Babington stood with Sidney, watching the dancers. Or rather, Babington watched Sidney watching Charlotte as she danced with young Stringer. They make a handsome couple, he said slyly. I think not, returned Sidney, only half pretending jealousy. Then what are you waiting for? He raised his eyebrows at Sidney, who opened his mouth to protest and then closed it again. He could no longer see any point in denying it. For the dance to end, he said, smiling now himself. But Babington's gaze had been drawn across the room, where Lady Denham and Esther had just made their entrance, the former carving a certain path through the lesser revelers. 
Catching his eye, Esther gave him one of the haughty looks he found so attractive. Babington patted Sidney on the shoulder. Excuse me, old friend. I hope you get a favorable answer. Indeed, I hope we both do. With that, he walked determinedly towards the Denims. Hovering on the edge of the dance floor, brow knitted with anxiety and displeasure, Diana was trying to attract her brother's attention. Really, Arthur, what do you think you're doing? She said when she finally caught his eye and he had obediently jigged over her, over to her. And in your state of health. His face was a livid red, but he was smiling. No, I am perfectly well. If I could just... He ran out of breath and collapsed into a chair. Diana, whose fragile nerves were nothing to her protectiveness of Arthur, rounded on Georgiana. Miss Lamb, that was most irresponsible of you. Where is Dr. Fuchs? How could you... I am so distressed. Where are my smelling salts? She rummaged frantically in her reticule, spilling handkerchiefs, buttons, and mysterious vials as she did. The smelling salts found, she waved them under Arthur's nose for longer than was strictly necessary. He sneezed hugely and then bellowed at his sister in protest, waving her away. No more, no more, he straightened up. If I could possibly have a bowl of ice cream, that might do the trick. Georgiana had been observing with amusement. You just need more exercise, she said. Come and dance again. No. Diana's eyes flashed. She put her narrow frame between Georgiana and Arthur. I entirely forbid it. Georgiana smirked, further rousing Diana's ire. Avant, you, you temptress, she cried. But this only further amused her foe, who blew Arthur a provocative kiss. Then, abruptly bored, she gestured to a local lad who was standing nearby. You'll do. She took his hand and led him onto the dance floor. Arthur looked after her longingly. Witnessing all this, Mrs. Griffiths was horrified. Really, Miss Lamb, she called out. Manners! Deportment! She turned to see if the Beaufort sisters were similarly shocked, but they had quite vanished. She searched the dance floor, but there was no sign of them. Where have those two gone now? Julia? Phyllida, where are you? Charlotte had been looking out for Sydney, even while she danced with young Stringer. When that finished, she had continued her search and was about to give up hope when he was suddenly there, so close that she could feel his warm breath on her neck. His voice was low and thrilling in her ear. Meet me on the balcony, he said, and the words made her shiver. When she turned, he had gone, as though he was never there. She threaded her way through the dancers, making sure that no one saw her leave. It was not that she was doing anything wrong, only that she wished this exchange to be private, to remain unobserved. It was dark on the balcony. The assembly rooms were so brilliantly lit that her eyes could not immediately adjust. Are you there? she murmured. The only reply was a fit of girlish giggles. She was about to turn back when someone opened the window and a square of light illuminated the balcony. At one end were a collection of limbs that resolved themselves, as she peered harder, into the two Beaufort girls. They were accompanied by two local men, boys really, whom Charlotte vaguely recognized, and all four were in disarray. She supposed that it was this her father had warned her about on her last night in Willingdon. Caught out, the girls fled, still laughing, their dubious companions lumbering after them. 
Then, framed in the doorway, she saw him. Are you there? he said, his eyes now struggling in the gloom. Over here, she breathed. I think we are alone now. She laughed softly. Indeed, I hope we are. He stood between her and the open window, and the light rendered him as little more than a broad-shouldered silhouette. She found that not being able to see his face calmed her nerves. Do you remember the last conversation we had on this balcony? He said. All too well. What a brute I was to you. I think I may have deserved everything you said. He paused. I hope I am a different man now. I wouldn't wish that. What would you wish me then? His voice was closer. He was almost touching her now. She knew he was studying her face, though she dared not look up at him, for while he was in shadow, the light shone directly on her and would doubtless betray her every feeling. The same man, she said, but more kindly disposed towards me. Indeed I am, more than I ever could have imagined. His voice was more eager than she had yet heard it. It made him seem younger, and she was touched. And I have changed, he went on, in no small part thanks to you. I never wanted to put myself in anyone's power before. I never wanted to care for anyone more than myself. In fact, Miss Haywood, Charlotte. She held her breath, but then an enormous crash rent the air. The enchantment was shattered. Damn it! I will see her! Get out of my way, you blackguards! They were drawn to the door and saw it was Sir Edward who shouted. He was clearly drunk and swayed where he stood. Hester, forgive me! He cried plaintively. Take me back! The two collective gasps and a few shouts of mocking laughter, he flung himself at her feet. She said nothing, apparently mute with horror and shock. The room had fallen silent. Even the band had paused to better hear his pleas. I've been such a fool, he wailed. I must have been mad, Esther. Listen to me. It was always you. I never cared for that little vixen, Clara. It's you I love, you and only you. Forgive me, Esther. Say we can be together again. He grabbed for her hands, but she pulled them away, leaving him to paw at her skirts. Tell me you love me still, as I love you. She drew herself up. You don't know the meaning of love. No, no, you don't mean that. You love me. You want me. Babington, who had been trying to push through the, the rapt crowd, came to stand between them. Denham, you're distressing your sister. You should leave now. Edward staggered to his feet and glared at him. Only if she tells me to go. Esther? She looked away, tears glistening in her eyes. Just go. He blanched, truly shocked. You bitch! He spat when he had recovered himself. You have just ruined my life. Turning, he shoved his way through the crowd, who began to murmur, quietly at first, and then louder, like a swarm of bees. Brother or lover, one man was heard to shout to an answering billow of laughter. Tom rushed to the middle of the room, gesturing frantically at the conductor. Ladies and gentlemen, take your partners, he cried, and the music struck up once again. In the newly finished house in Mr. Parker's beloved Crescent, which was now complete to old Stringer's exacting standards at last, he was packing up his tools. It was late now, the moon riding high. He could just hear the music from the assembly rooms. 
His boy would be there, he supposed, mixing with the gentry he would never be. Despite what he'd said to the boy, he was proud, prouder than he'd ever know. When he discouraged him from trying to better himself, it was only to protect him from a life of dissatisfaction and the loss of belonging. He could never seem to explain himself like that, though all his skill was in his hands, not with words. The boy's mother had been better at all that, but she'd been gone ten years now. He stood back to inspect the moldings he'd been working on. From the new angle, he could see a bit he'd missed right at the top. It wouldn't do, so he got out his sanding block and heaved himself back up the ladder on his good leg. He was dog-tired, he thought, and wanted nothing more than his chair by the fire. Every muscle and sinew in his body hurt, his chest worst of all. He reached up with his block, and the ache suddenly deepened and spread down his arm, as heavy and breath-stealing as another block of stone landing on him. He was insensible before he hit the floor, hand clutched to his heart, his last thought of his son. The ladder he toppled off now teetered and fell, knocking into the candles he'd lit so he could work on into the night. They landed, still burning, on the floor that was strewn with wood shavings. No one, including Old Stringer, heard the fierce rush of air as the first flames went up. Mm. When Mr. Parker had announced a new dance, Esther had used the distraction as an opportunity to run from the room. She thought she might collapse if she didn't. Babington caught up with her on the steps of the assembly room. "'Miss Denham! Esther! Leave me alone!' she cried. "'Aren't you afraid you'll be tainted by my disgrace?' He went to take her hands, and then thought better of it. She was still trembling from head to foot. She reminded him of a corner deer. "'Not in the least,' he said gently. "'My dear girl, don't you know that I'm in love with you?' She covered her hand, face with her hands. "'And what is that to me?' When I don't love you, I don't care. It is enough that you like me, that you trust me. She attempted to calm her breathing. I have no desire to be your property. Good, because I have no desire to own you. That took her aback. But why else would you have me as a wife? He threw up his hands. Because I wish to make you happy. That confounded her utterly. She searched his face for guile or trickery of some sort, but could find none. I would never try to lead you or constrain you, Esther. All I ask is to walk through life by your side. Esther let go a long, shuddering sigh. Then she nodded just once. Very well, then, she said, and waited to feel the cold fingers of regret and resignation clutched at her heart, but none came. Only some measure of peace. Babington blinked hard. You accept me? She almost smiled. Stop talking before I change my mind, she said, and marveled at the unaffected joy in Babington's face as he understood that she had relented at last. As Babington and his newly intended left the scene, their steps were retraced by Arthur and Diana. The latter was still in a state of fluctuating between tearfulness and high dudgeon. Really, Diana, I don't know why you should be so upset. There's no harm in dancing, surely, 
really not that delicate. She dabbed at her eyes. It's not the dancing. Oh, Arthur, don't you understand? Look at the denims. Sibling must always leave each other in the end, I suppose. Arthur was rather perplexed. We're very different from those two, sister. Oh, don't you try and shield me from the truth, she exclaimed. I knew as soon as I saw you dancing together. You're in love with Miss Lamb, aren't you? You'll marry her and I'll be left all on my own. A small sob escaped her and, humiliated, she walked on even faster. Arthur was stricken. No, no, no. We're just pals, that's all. Love and marriage is not my style of things at all. Wouldn't have the least idea how to go about it. Don't really know how ladies work. He patted his stomach contentedly. No, you've no worry on that score. I'll be a lifelong bachelor. Truly? Truly. Buns and cocoa once we're home. Diana beamed. Dear Arthur, of course, buns and cocoa. But their contentment was short-lived. Rounding the corner to pass along Waterloo Terrace, Diana's eye was drawn by something bright in one of the windows. Arthur, look! Up in that window! They hastened closer and saw that the light was in fact flames. They had already burst the glass and were licking up the stone, turning it black. Now they were closer, they could hear its roar louder than the crash of the sea below. Chapter 37 for a terrible moment, Diana and Arthur could do nothing more than stare with profound horror as the flames leapt higher, reaching towards the evening sky. It was Arthur who acted first. He shook his sister by the shoulders. Hurry, he said with great urgency. Raise the alarm! Diana nodded and began to run back towards the assembly room. Fire! Arthur bellowed at the empty street. Fire! It felt as though the whole town were oblivious at the dance. That averting this disaster was in the hands of he and Diana alone. He thought of his brother Tom and his great ambitions for Sanditon and shouted again, louder this time. Diana rushed into the assembly rooms and, even in her state of extreme terror, the quieter part of her mind marveled that the scene within remained unchanged, even as disaster threatened without. She caught sight of Tom, dancing with one of the Mrs. Beaufort. He looked so happy and at ease after so much worry. She did not want to be the one to ruin that. But then she thought of the fire, which would be growing and spreading with every passing minute. She tried first to wave at him, but he didn't see her, and she couldn't find a way through the press of dancers. In desperation, she joined the dance herself, turning and spinning mechanically, until the music brought her close enough to Tom then he noticed her at last. Diana, I thought you were leaving. Even now, she did not want to embarrass him in front of his guests. We were, but an uh, urgent situation compelled my return. She dropped her voice. You must come at once. Tom gave her a meaningful look. I'm certain it can wait until the end of the dance. Desperation took her over. It cannot. Somewhat exasperated, Tom made his circuitous way off the dance floor bowing to people as he went. Mary, who had seen the exchange from where she was sitting with Lady Denham, went to him. If Tom was slow to sense trouble, she was not. Nothing to worry about, my dear, he reassured her as Charlotte joined them. Just a small incident at the terrace I must deal with. Can you make sure everyone continues to enjoy themselves if I slip out? She tried to smile, but the anxiety growing inside was beginning to be insistent. Still, she nodded. Of course. 
Tom made for the door. Charlotte, after a moment's hesitation, followed him. The scene that met them at the terrace was shocking enough for Diana. For Tom and Charlotte, it was horrifying. The whole upper floor of the building was now ablaze, smoke billowing into the air. It was like something alive, alive and ruthless, and devouring more of Tom's beloved terrace every second. Arthur's cries had eventually brought help, and men now attacked the conflagration with buckets of water in a haphazard manner, though it seemed to be making little difference to the ferocity of the fire. "'Dear God, no! How could this have happened?' said Tom. Charlotte ran over to Arthur, who was now streaked with soot from head to toe. "'Is it not devastating?' he said desperately. "'We cannot seem to tame it. Careful!' he cried as she approached the building. The windows have blown out. But Charlotte felt peculiarly calm, just as she had when Old Stringer had fallen. You need to form a line, she shouted over the din. The men, startled at the sound of a woman's voice, turned to stare. But then, quite suddenly, Sydney was there next to her. Their eyes met, understanding passing between them. Well, come now, he shouted. You are there. Soon the men were arranged into a line, along which buckets of water were passed along. A cart carrying a water pump arrived, and Sydney climbed up to get it working. "'Just keep the water coming,' Charlotte cried to the men. "'You cannot let up!' But in truth there was little to be done. Tom was paralyzed as he watched the terrors burn, shock and horror rendering him helpless. Charlotte touched his arm. At least no one was inside. He grabbed onto that like a life raft. Yes, you're right. It is only bricks and mortar, after all. At the assembly rooms, Mary was circulating among the guests, doing her best to appear normal. Her thoughts, though, were with Tom and what might be happening outside. Her smile was becoming increasingly strained. Mrs. Parker! I say, Mrs. Parker! It was Lady Denham. Yes, my lady? I hope you're enjoying yourself. Has our host absconded? She said irritably. I haven't seen him in half an hour. Moreover, he seems to have taken half the party with him. Mary swallowed. She wouldn't be able to contain her anxiety for much longer. I have no doubt they will return shortly, she managed to say. As she did, Fred Robinson entered the room and pushed through the congregation to reach young Stringer. At his words, unheard by anyone else over the music, all the blood drained from the foreman's face. The two of them rushed out, breaking into a run as they reached the steps. It was a lonely dash through the dark to the only home Younger had ever known. As he approached the cottage, he could almost see his father in his usual place by the fire, Hercules at his feet. He wished with all his heart it would be so, but as he turned the door handle, he could see through the window that the cottage was in complete darkness. He stepped inside, the dog running to greet him, though he hardly noticed. No fire had been lit, and the air was chill. His father was not here. Cursing himself for coming home first, when instinct had whispered that he would not be here, young Stringer raced back towards the new part of town to the terrace. He heard it before he saw it, like the great roar of a monster. He knew from Fred that it had caught fire, but still he wasn't prepared for the sight of it when he got there. The upper floor was gone now, 
the clean lines of it ruined and reduced to blackened stumps like broken teeth. The fire, not yet sated, raged on and had spread to the lower floors, the ladders propped against the facade, where men were hanging up buckets of water, seemed futile. The blaze had already won. His father was inside that hell. He knew with his every fiber, and there was nothing he or anyone else could do. Chapter 38 If the night was terrifying, the dawn brought only desolation. The triumphant mood of the ball seemed like a thousand years ago, as Tom, Sidney, and Arthur stood among the ruins of Waterloo Terrace. In places, the fire was still smoldering and all were streaked with soot. Charlotte had already gone to the Stringer's cottage, where she found young Stringer almost broken by grief and guilt. He was kneeling next to a trestle table where a simple coffin had been laid. Fred Robinson and some of the other men stood close by, their faces full of sorrow and their hats in their hands. They seemed afraid to approach the stricken son. Without hesitating, Charlotte went over and laid a gentle hand on his shoulder. I am so sorry. No one had any idea he was, in, he was there until it was too late. Young Stringer shook his head. I told him to leave, but he would stay. Why did he have to be so stubborn? That's who he was. That's what you loved him for. I should have stayed. The last words I spoke to him were in anger. We parted on a quarrel, Charlotte. He looked up at her, eyes rimmed with red. She could see the boy in him. He was an orphan now, utterly at a loss for any words of comfort. She reached instead for his hand. When she left him and joined the Parkers at the ruined terrace, Tom was hardly less inconsolable. His determined, occasionally delusional optimism had finally deserted him. Like his terrace, he had been reduced to a shell of his former self. Take heart, Tom, said Sidney, his encouraging words belied by his grave expression. We can rebuild it. We can make it even finer than it was. Tom looked bleak and then, in his usual way, tried to shake himself out of it. Yes, yes, we will. We'll find a way to raise the money somehow. Sidney looked at him sharply. The money? Surely in the insurance will cover that. His brother looked down. Yes, yes, I suppose it would. For God's sake, Tom, tell me the work was insured. He said nothing. Tom! Sidney's voice was harsh. I, I had intended to, but the premium was so high, and there were so many other calls on my capital. So you took a gamble? I know, I know. I know. No one could judge me more harshly than I judge myself. But never my worst nightmares could I have anticipated. He tailed off. No one spoke for a time. It was Arthur who broke the heavy silence. Well, there is no point in being downhearted. We must be practical. I have barely touched my inheritance, having neither a wife nor a property to my name. Consider it yours, Tom. Every last penny. Tom hung his head. He looked as though he might sit down in the ashes and weep. My dear Arthur, thank you. But with all our wealth combined, it would be a drop in the ocean compared to what I owe. Sidney shook his head. That can't be right. Forget the three thousand I gave you. However, however much else. 
You need to put this right. I'm sure I can find it. 80, said Tom miserably. Sydney absorbed the huge sum as a physical blow. 80,000? There is no way anyone could pay such an amount. I am ruined. I am so sorry that I should bring such shame upon my family. He shook his head, utterly appalled. He left them standing there in shock. He needed to be home. He needed his wife, though God knows she was well within her rights never to speak to him again. He found her in the sitting room, a shawl around her shoulders. She hadn't slept either, her beloved face pale and drawn. At that desperate moment, Diana Parker burst into the room. Arthur and Sidney arrived out of breath a few seconds later. She gestured for her brothers to gather close, and they obeyed her as they had once heeded their mother. Their usually meek, delicate sister was almost unrecognizable, her eyes fiery and her small hands squeezed into fists. There was no smelling salts in sight. Arthur has told me everything and I won't have it, she cried eyeing each of them in turn. I simply won't have it. Of course, this is a setback, but I refuse to let you be defeated by it. Sanditon must not be allowed to founder and fall. We are Parkers. We stand together. A tiny flicker of hope was just dawning on Tom's face when Lady Denham was announced. Mr. Parker, you have betrayed us all, was her opening gambit, immediately establishing the visit's theme. Charlotte, who was still removing her gloves, exchanged a look with Sidney and took Mary's hand. "'Where are your promises now?' Lady Denham went on, addressing the top of Tom's aching head, which he had lowered into his hands. "'Dust and ashes! You took my money and you gambled it away. You might as well have lost it at the gaming tables. Despicable man! We'll see you in the debtor's prison. We'll see you in the poorhouse!' Mary stepped forward valiantly. "'Lady Denham!' I am very sorry for you, Mrs. Parker, but some things can never be forgiven. She stood to leave, but Charlotte held up a hand. If you pursue the debt now, Lady Denham, you may be robbing yourself. We can rebuild the terrace, better and bigger than before. Give Mr. Parker a week's grace, at least. Lady Denham tutted her disapproval. Very well. One week. Tom did not, could not answer, but Sidney nodded. You have my word. It wasn't much later that Sidney happened upon Charlotte, who had been hovering uncertainly in Tom's study. He was wearing his traveling clothes. I have to go to London. I must do whatever I can to help Tom, though I have no idea how I will manage it. I believe you will. There was so much encouragement and conviction in her face that it fortified him. He reached out to cup her chin. When I return... You will finally have the chance to finish our conversation. He stopped, and they shared a long look. Both had much to say, but no time to say it in. He bent to kiss her, and then was gone from the room. The burial of Mr. Stringer, Master Mason, was a sad day for all of Sanditon. Tom had been fearful of attending, certain that the mourners would blame him as much as he blamed himself. He would have stayed away had it not been for Mary and Charlotte, who insisted it would be worse if he did not go. As it was, no one accused him of anything, at least not to his face. Tom knew that the workers who attended were talking of him, 
and when he saw his foreman's grief-struck face, it was more than he could bear. He strode away from the mourners towards the now-empty church. Mary gave him some minutes of solitude before she joined him, broken on the back pew. I don't know what to say to you, Mary, he began. We could have lived perfectly happily with what God had given us, but something made me feel I had to make a name for myself. I had to make Sanditon into a place of fashion. But why? It was all perfectly good as it was. What a silly, glorious fool I have been. And now I am bankrupted. What can you think of me, Mary? Tom, stop that. She reached out and stroked his face. I can't bear to see you punishing yourself. This is a misfortune, but somehow we'll come through it. How could I face anyone after this? He buried his face in his shoulder, more like little Henry than a man. I don't care what anyone else says, said Mary staunchly. I absolutely believe in you, Tom, and I love you. So there. He looked up at her, a tiny ember of hope in his eyes. Oh, Mary, he whispered. My dear, dear girl. It was six interminable days before Sydney returned. It might as well have been five years for the occupants of Trulger House. Tom had almost worn a groove in the hall tiles with his pacing, and Charlotte had spent more hours at the window of her room than she cared to count. Finally, a cry went up from little Alicia, whose sharp ears had heard his horse's shoes ring out on the street outside. Though Charlotte had been willing his arrival, she found she could not leave her room, even as she heard the Parkers rush to greet him downstairs. She crept to the top of the stairs as the front door closed. A minute passed, her heart thudding every second of it in her chest, and then she heard Tom's cry of relief go up. You've done it! His voice was lighter than it had been since the, that fateful night of the ball. You've done it! You've pulled it off! I knew you would! Well done, my boy. What a brother I have. Charlotte, smiling now, flew down the stairs, the sooner to hear the good news for herself. Tom saw her first. Ah, Charlotte, glorious news. Sanditon is saved, and it is all down to Sydney. Oh, how wonderful. She searched out Sydney's eyes, but he was looking at his feet. But that's not the only good news, is it, Sydney? Charlotte's gaze went to Mary. Unlike Tom, she wasn't smiling. She blinked in awkwardness and confusion. We're just off to tell Lady Denham, continued Tom. Come along, my dear. He took Mary's arm. I just hope the cost was not too high, said Mary so quietly that Charlotte only just caught it. Come along, Sydney, cried Tom. He was already out of the door. Finally, Sydney looked up at Charlotte. In a minute, he called after his brother. They were abruptly alone, and Charlotte's heart began to gallop once more. He was there, standing before her, just as she had pictured so many times since he had been gone. Each time she had imagined what his face would look like if he could not secure funds for Tom, and if, what joy, he could, but the expression on his face now signaled neither. While her mind could not comprehend it all, it seemed that her heart did. Oh, she thought, oh, it is bad news, but only for me. His words, when they came, were heavy with sorrow. Charlotte, dear Charlotte, I had hoped, 
when I return to be able to make you a proposal of marriage. That cannot be. She concentrated her gaze on a button of his coat so she didn't cry. The fact is, he went on, I have been obliged to marry myself to, to Mrs. Campion. He waited for her to say something, but when she did not, for she could not, he stumbled on. Please plead that if there were any other way to resolve Tom's situation. I understand, she interrupted him. She only wanted to leave him, nausea and tears rising in her throat. I, I wish you every happiness. Excuse me. She rushed past him and back up the stairs, pathetically grateful that Mary and Tom had gone, that the children and servants were nowhere to be seen. She closed her bedroom door quietly behind her and sat down on her bed, wishing nothing more than to pull the covers over her head like a distressed child. Only then did she allow the tears to fall. Chapter 39 The weather was as fine as could be wished for a wedding. The sky above Babington Hall's chapel, a rich cerulean blue, only the lightest of clouds venturing to cross it. "'Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today in the sight of God,' began the vicar. He beamed at the couple before him with approval. The groom looked particularly happy, if a little disbelieving that the woman standing up next to him had agreed to be there. "'I lent her that tiara, you know,' said Lady Denham quite audibly, nodding towards her niece at the altar, about to become Lady Babington. "'Well, it did very well for my wedding. Of course, I want it back after the—' I shall want it back after the ceremony. Another couple in the congregation had been separated by circumstance, and both felt it keenly. Charlotte had not seen Sydney for some time, and now that they were under the same roof once more, she was acutely aware of him, dressed across the aisle. He caught up with her after the ceremony, when the guests had been ushered towards the hall's smooth emerald lawn, where half a dozen linen-topped tables were laden with drinks. They found themselves alone, all other eyes on the newly married couple. "'How do you do, Miss Haywood?' "'Very well, thank you.' She hated how stiff she was, but did not know how else to be. "'And your family are well?' "'Very well.' "'Ah.' The silence yawned between them. Charlotte did not think she could bear it. "'How are your own wedding plans?' she said eventually. Oh, "'Elaborate,' he looked miserable. She met his eye properly for the first time. There was no contentment there to be read. Mrs. Campion appeared at his shoulder, having made her usual silent approach. She looked between the two of them, eyes sharp. "'Who would have thought planning a London wedding could be so exhausting?' she said merrily though she continued to watch Charlotte like a hawk. Perhaps we should have a simple village affair like this one, dear. She took Sidney's arm. Though I don't think that would be quite our sort of thing, do you? Sidney said nothing, his gaze now trained on the middle distance. Charlotte looked at her feet. Really, men? What do they know? Mrs. Campion went on, slightly too loudly. She tucked her arm into Sidney's and pulled him away. "'Good day, Miss Haywood.' Charlotte was left quite alone, the beauty of her surroundings and the happiness of the occasion seeming to mock her. When Esther opened her eyes on the first morning of her life as a married woman, 
She was disorientated for a moment. Good morning, Lady Babington. The voice, full of warmth and amusement, made her turn. Next to her in the bed was Lord Babington, who was now her husband. She might have expected regret, for this was her life now, and always. But she couldn't summon the smallest misgiving. Beyond the opulent suite of rooms that were to be hers, so much lighter than poor old Denham Place, where damp stained the wallpaper and smoke yellowed the ceiling. Babington Hall seemed to lift and cradle her. It was quite the most commodious and elegant house she'd ever set foot in, and a different proposition altogether to Sanditon House, with its gothic excess and tendency to vulgarity. Quite satisfied, she turned to Babington. Oh, good morning. Do you know, I had almost forgotten where I was. You're not unhappy to find yourself here, I hope? She considered, a finger to her lips. Hmm, well. Seeing his concern, she stroked his cheek. I am teasing. Oddly, I find I am not at all unhappy. Or disappointed? And not that either, rather to my surprise. I wasn't expecting you to be quite so... Quite so... She looked down coyly at the tangled sheets. He smiled. Quite so what? No, I should blush to put it into words, and compliments, as you know, are not my style. Come here, Babington. As for Miss Lamb, she remained in Mrs. Griffith's lodging house, and though she had not lately given her guardian any cause for worry, she was harboring a new secret. A knock at the door tore her away from the window. It was the faithful Crockett. A letter for you, miss. She almost ran to the door to snatch it. Alone again, she tore it open, her heart lifting at the familiar hand. Otis, even saying his name under her breath, made them feel closer. He wrote, I have been obliged to enlist in the Navy, where I hope to prosper and improve my circumstances. Wait for me, Georgiana. My love for you burns as fiercely as ever, and I promise you that I will come back and claim you, my one and only true love. I remain your Otis. She read it again, and then clutched the missive to her breast. Sidney Parker might not know it, but her feelings had not waned at all. Indeed, simmering in her dark eyes was as much determination as love. She would see her beloved again. She knew it to her marrow. And then, quite suddenly it seemed, it was the end of the season, and the morning of Charlotte's departure. She could not quite believe it had come. She made the walk to young Stringer's cottage, where he now lived alone. Despite his grief for his father, which still weighed heavily on him, he couldn't help smiling when he opened the door to Charlotte. Miss Haywood? I just came to say goodbye. She stooped to pat the dog, Hercules, who had bounded out to greet her. I appreciate you taking the trouble, he said. Do you expect to return to Sanderson again? She gave him a pensive smile. I hope so, but I cannot say for certain. When do you leave for London? He gestured about him. I have decided I owe it to Father's memory to stay here, at least until the new works are completed. They exchanged a, a warm look, and she thought, as she had before, how much she liked him. I hear Mr. Sidney Parker is engaged. She looked down. Yes, I hope they will be very happy. She's not half the woman you are, he said, 
taking her by surprise. If he can't see that, then he doesn't deserve you. He had flushed with the force and passion behind the words. She smiled again, understanding a little of what he was feeling. Thank you, Mr. Stringer, she said gently. She returned to Trafalgar House, and the hour of her departure soon arrived. At the door, she knelt to kiss the children goodbye. Now, be good, and don't forget to write me. And you must write to us, said Alicia, who was close to tears. Charlotte gave her another kiss. Of course I will. She straightened up and turned to Tom. I hope the rebuilding goes well. Tom flung out his arms, almost knocking little Jenny flying. Sanditon will rise, phoenix-like, from the ashes, sure as eggs is eggs. It was Mary's turn to embrace her. I cannot thank you enough for your kindness, said Charlotte, and for being such a good friend to me. Mary kissed her cheek. I am only sorry Sidney wasn't here to say goodbye. A look passed between them. He has other commitments, said Charlotte. I do understand. My dear Charlotte, Mary dabbed at her eyes with a handkerchief. Despite everything, I do hope you don't regret coming to Sanditon. Charlotte shook her head, smiling, though she was too close to tears. How could I? It has been the greatest adventure of my life. It was the truth. Well, we will miss you. You are always welcome. She descended the steps and was helped into the waiting carriage. Goodbye, she cried as it moved off. Goodbye. As the Parkers retreated out of sight, Charlotte took a shaky breath, almost overcome. She watched Sanditon's houses and shops pass by the window, all of them now as familiar and dear as they had once been novel all those weeks ago. As they left the town behind, the road climbing to scale the cliffs ahead, a solitary figure stepped into the road. The carriage was brought to a halt, and she realized with a lurch of her bruised heart that it was Sydney. She had thought never to see him again. She stepped down to the road, her legs shaking beneath her. It was hard to look at him, knowing with certainty that he now belonged to someone else. He moved towards her, as if to take her hand, but then seemed to think better of it. I couldn't let you go without, he sighed heavily. Tell me you don't think too badly of me. I don't think too well of myself. She shook her head. I don't think badly of you. That is kind of you. Don't love her, you know. There was desperation in his face, and perversely, it made Charlotte feel stronger. You must not speak like that. She loves you, and you have agreed to marry her. You must try and make her happy. He looked down and nodded. Yes, you are right. I must fulfill my side of the bargain. Goodbye then, Charlotte. I wish you every happiness. Goodbye. But neither one moved. Not for a long moment. It was Charlotte, in the end, who broke the spell and climbed back into the carriage. Before she shut the door, he stepped forward, and this time he did take her hand. The longing in their faces was very evident. As the carriage began to move, leaving him behind, she could not tear her eyes from his, even as he grew smaller and smaller as the horses gathered speed. When he was finally out of sight, 
she forced herself to look forward, though it took all her strength to do so. She was going home now, to Willingdon, that other life she had glimpsed for herself, just briefly, had surely gone, carry away, carried away on the sea breeze. All right, friends, that was the end of Sanditon. What a journey it was. Uh, thank you so much for joining. Next week, I will be starting a new book. Um, I'm not sure which one yet. And then stay tuned because I will be having a discussion episode of Sanditon with Mariah and Corey uh, once they've all caught up and it fits into our schedules to record. As always, you can contact me and find me on Instagram at Sari the Fairy Reads Books or uh, via email at Sari the Fairy Reads Books at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much. <laughs>